Welcome to episode 11 of The Reading Cure. In this episode, we'll be discussing the book Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Welcome to The Reading Cure, the podcast where we discuss great books that change lives. My name is Dr. Stephen Davis and my co-host is Dr. Alexander Fox. Now let me begin with a quote from our featured book in which Viktor Frankl recounts a revelatory moment for him during his imprisonment. We were at work in a trench. The dawn was grey around us. Grey was the sky above. Grey the snow and the pale light of dawn. Grey the rags in which my fellow prisoners were clad and grey their faces. I was again conversing silently with my wife, or perhaps I was struggling to find the reason for my sufferings, my slow dying. In a last violent protest against the hopelessness of imminent death, I sensed my spirit piercing through the enveloping gloom. I felt it transcend that hopeless, meaningless world, and from somewhere I heard a victorious yes in answer to my question of the existence of an ultimate purpose. At that moment, a light was lit in a distant farmhouse, which stood on the horizon as if painted there in the midst of the miserable grey of a dawning morning in Bavaria. So in this book, Man's Search for Meaning, um, Viktor Frankl both chronicles his brutal experiences in Nazi concentration camps as well as explaining how these led him to a perspective that he called tragic optimism, which would in turn serve as the foundation for the school of therapy, logotherapy, that he would go on to found. As well as recounting his harrowing experiences, the book also gives a brief outline of logotherapy, a method of psychotherapy that involves reorienting a person towards ways in which they can find meaning and a sense of purpose in life. Now, despite enduring three years in various Nazi concentration camps, Viktor Frankl remarkably lived to the age of 92. He he passed away as recently as 1997 after a long and distinguished career as a writer, academic and psychotherapist. Prior to his imprisonment in the concentration camps, Frankl was the head neurologist at the Rothschild Hospital in Vienna. He had been publishing work in psychology journals since the mid-1920s, which had led him to break with the Freudian and Adlerian psychoanalytic circles, both of whom he felt had failed to grasp the nature and centrality of a will to meaning underlying human life. Logotherapy is considered the third major school of Viennese psychotherapy, following those of Freud and Adler, and Frankl's work was widely influential in both Europe and the United States. He published 39 books and received numerous awards and other commendations for his work. These professional achievements, along with his own remarkable story of perseverance and hope against the odds, have made Viktor Frankl an iconic figure amongst those in the humanistic psychology movement. Now, just before we begin our discussion of today's featured book, um, I just wanted to remind you that um, there are a number of things you can do to help support the podcast if you have been enjoying The Reason Cure. 
Um, you can hit subscribe on YouTube or on podcast apps. You can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And lastly, we have a Patreon page as well if you'd be interested in supporting us there. And uh, of course, all support um, is very much appreciated. So the, the first question then, Alec, that we're going to talk about tonight was um, what key qualities do you think that Franco possessed that might have allowed him to survive the concentration camps and ultimately go on to lead a long and successful life? Well, I think this question is a bit controversial in, in some ways. I mean, if you read about some of the responses to Frankel, uh, some commentators have criticised him for what they perceived was uh, an overemphasis on the subjective or the personal qualities, almost as though Frankel was saying, if if you didn't survive the camps, that you lacked these certain qualities. Now, I'm not yeah. saying that, that Frankel was actually, uh, you know, saying that directly. But it is something to keep in mind here that whatever Frankel's view on this, that we don't, you know, overemphasize personal qualities or subjective outlooks. I mean, these are important, no doubt, in terms of survival, but there would be many factors that would have ensured that some survived and most didn't. And yeah, uh, so, of course. so you know, it's like offering that disclaimer before we. I think we it's look maybe at also worth pointing out. I think does Frankel himself not? Did he not say you know something like the best of us didn't come back from the camps? You know, I think he he was keen to emphasise maybe if we're talking about qualities that allowed people to survive, it wasn't necessarily the most moral uh, that that had the best chance. You know, not and again, it's all chances. I think you're absolutely right. It's important to know that. Yeah, I mean, I I know he yeah. I know he says that. I'm not sure if he completely believed that though, because in in the narrative there does seem to be a suggestion that certain qualities were quite pivotal. In terms mm-hmm. of managing to survive or endure, and I mean that isn't a completely unreasonable position, but as I say, it could be taken to extremes, yes, and it downplays yeah. other factors. Probably luck was so yeah. so important, but because Frankel's intention in the book was to use his harrowing experience to develop a narrative for therapeutic means, you could see why he would focus on those qualities. But yeah, Absolutely. I think we have to give yeah. that disclaimer. But with that disclaimer in mind, um, you know, one of the key qualities I think he had was that he was able to invest and keep alive a meaningful future for himself. So, you know, we see at various points in the book that uh, what kept him going, he says, was considering writing this book, you know, the very one that we were holding, um, and delivering lectures. So this meaningful future, to envision it, to allow it to inspire him, was a key part in in him maintaining his spirit and, and keeping his hopes up, to put it in a very colloquial way. He was able to inspire his hope and maintain it, nurture it, really, by yeah. by a kind of continual reflection on a meaningful future. I think so, yeah. I think that I think that's a good point. I mean, um he, he talks, doesn't he, about the fact that he had this 
vivid ability i think he vivid inward life you know this ability to kind of summon up images in his mind that he yeah. could use to sometimes you know relieve temporarily the, the you know the miserable conditions and the suffering and and kind of slightly live a bit inwardly there and i think yeah i think i suppose somebody that has the capacity to do that you know would be able to both imagine the future more intensely and therefore focus on it but I, and also he, he talks about summing up you know memories of his wife and you know mm. things that were meaningful in his life so i suppose there's just that ability to just slightly be out with the grim the grim present you know f- for periods yeah. of time and actually make your life yeah. you know have have a kind of shape you know beyond that yeah i mean it's it, it's something that you know kierkegaard might have thought about in the in this way which is that he talks about in his book the sickness unto death you know there being different dimensions to being a self and he talks about the finite and the infinite and possibility and necessity and I think that in Auschwitz in those camps um, it would have been so easy to get lodged at the end of um, necessity necessity for Kierkegaard meant you know the focus on the present and the past, you know, what has necessarily happened, whereas possibility was opening up some kind of future. Yep. And, you know, what, what he said is that if you were so focused on the finite, that would be thinking so concretely that you would get lost in the particulars of of your life and you cannot envision, uh, you know, a future that yeah. could create a sense of possibility. What we see with Frankl, as Kierkegaard might have put it, is someone that still had a sense of possibility when there seemed to be so much grim necessity. Somebody that could imagine possibilities when it seems so definitively concrete and bleak. Yeah, I think that's a really that's a nice way of explaining it. There really, there's a there's a kind of concrete um, example of that that just comes to mind. Where he, I think he talks about a day where he was maybe trudging back yeah. from a a grim piece of work where he found himself kind of ruminating his in his head about the kind of day to day. You know how what what food am I going to get tonight yeah. and how you know and these kind of things. And then he he almost describes it as a bit like lambasting himself mm. for slipping into that and and then beginning to imagine himself delivering a lecture or something like that. You know and it's like he was really um, quite um, incredibly self-disciplined actually in using this ability because he saw it as integral to survival prospects actually you know this just keeping it in this this version of himself that wasn't as you said getting lost in the the necessity elements yeah. of life and just keeping something broader alive and yes it, you know yeah i mean he, he was clearly a a remarkable man because i think that um for a lot of people, particularly people that have been highly educated like him, that their attention could be so focused and disciplined, almost like, you know how it is that if you've, for a lot of highly educated people, they've had to put a certain constraint on their imagination, which you could imagine could be profoundly unproductive and and costly in an Auschwitz-like situation. You know, what we've got is this highly educated man who is also, in the best sense of the term, a dreamer. And and it's, it's been able to unite those two together, that he had an intellectual and imaginative understanding of his situation that, that helped him to endure 
you know, these tremendously difficult circumstances, you know, the, the, this very despairing circumstance. Yeah. But, you know, even if he felt en enveloped by the dark, he had a keen sense of where the light was, and he kept that in front of him. Yeah, I think that's absolutely spot on. He, he did, didn't he? he? He was, I mean, it's very clear in his writing that he's a guy with a very strong kind of moral sense. And he, and he clearly had that prior to being, to you know, to, to being put in these, these camps, you know, and, and he never loses that either. You know, it's like he, he you know, it, it, is, it is a very interesting combination of qualities, as you said, the kind of the dreamer, but, but, but again, a dreamer with a real sense of mission and purpose yeah. and right and wrong. And, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting kind of combination. He's also, I mean, he, he mentions this himself. He keeps, he mentions about this capacity for self-detachment. You know, the idea that he could observe his miserable plight as if he was looking yeah. know, on it himself and not feel so identified with it. And therefore, maybe some of the fear, even using grim humour and things yeah. to try to actually keep that detachment there and not be so, um, I suppose, just stuck in self-concern, but but almost, you know, operating on a slightly higher higher realm or you know from higher values as much as, as possibly could be um, in that situation you know so yeah really yeah interesting personality a, a very kind of um interesting guy yeah i mean absolutely um, I, th I think actually him being a psychiatrist might have helped in in these circumstances because he was almost able to see his own situation as a case study yeah, in a yep. way, so that that really helped him because he was able to adopt um, a third person perspective, and this is something that Ethan Cross, uh, a psychologist uh, at the moment, he he's written a book called Chatter, which is about how uh, taking a second a second or third person perspective can help us cope with stress, and Frankel's, you know, objective. Uh, positioning of how he saw his own plight is similar to what Cross is talking about. He, you know, that Frankel was almost this, uh, able to see it as though it wasn't him, but he was, you know, watching on, you know, as an onlooker. So what, what we see is this rich tapestry of perspectives that Frankel could adopt because at one point he could inhabit the, the first person perspective and think about his wife, you know, like his very yeah. loving connection to his wife, you know, from that first person perspective. But yeah. other times it could be like he's looking down from above and watching him as though it was another human being in this situation and detach from it and yeah. gain some perspective in that third person perspective sort of way. Uh, so he had this rich repertoire of perspectives that he was able to utilise uh, that, that were all therapeutic and functional. Because obviously I, I think, if he detached himself too much, that could be counterproductive to say the least. On the other hand, yeah. if he was too immersed in the first person perspective, it could degenerate into self-pity and, and even selfishness. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's it. You're right. It was like he, he he managed to strike that perfect balance. And I think that's a very good point about his psychiatry background being quite integral there, because obviously, as you, as you mentioned earlier, you know, the, the desire to reconstruct this manuscript of this first yeah. book that was taken from him, you know, very cruelly as all the possessions were taken from the people arriving at the camps, you know, that the desire to reconstruct, that was obviously one aspect of him keeping going and looking to the future. But yeah, also you get, you get the vibe, you know, that this, Man's search for meaning, you know, these this experience that it's written in the style of a you know, and, and he, he's quite you know explicit about this, like a psychiatrist trying to understand the experience of a person in a, in a concentration camp in terms of the psychological dynamics of it. So you kind of almost get the sense he was almost writing that in his head before you know, mm-hmm. before he, he managed to survive and escape, you know, um, and that he, you know, this this kind of way of of experiencing that as you say, not all the time, but for part of the time, was a really powerful way that he could cope, actually, by just, well, just being was. fascinated to a degree in terms of what people, how people cope and, and how well, they, Well, yes, you know, yeah. I mean, uh, the I think what was particularly powerful and potent about the kind of book that he intended to write is that, well, first of all, and most obviously, wanting to write such a book gave him a very... Um, definite purpose, a reason to yeah. live, a reason to see out this experience as much as as it, as it, you know luck would have it. Yep. But on a more subtle level, because he was also going to be writing an autobiographical book, what what it meant was that this period was a chapter or chapters in this book, but not not the 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 conclusion of the yes. autobiography. So it's situated what was happening to him as, you know, a transition point, a very difficult one, but still a yeah. transition point, not a, not an ending. There was no finality to it as long as he could conceive this experience as, you know, contributing to this eventual book. That's very true. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I just find it remarkable that he was able to, in a way, keep fear at bay, you know, in terms of his life was so constantly jeopardised um, that on the one hand, it wasn't like he wasn't being attentive to the, you know, the imperatives of survival. He obviously was enough that he, he, he managed to get through it. Um, but at the same time, it's like he didn't, he didn't kind of you know, wait, not waste energy, but, you know, he didn't lose himself in the fears and the and the deliberations, you know, presumably as much as others might in that situation. You know, he just had that inner kind of strength in a way, that sort of natural composure. You know, I think he, I think he's, I think he says he was somebody of an upbeat temperament and that was just naturally his disposition. But, you know, it was that kind of remarkable courage in that situation where he could just not get lost in the fear of, of a, I, I yes, quite yeah. I mean, that, that's a very good point about his equanimity, yeah, um, his yeah, ability yeah. to, um, not lose it in terms of depression or anxiety. Yeah. And and I think, you know, it is to do with courage, that that's for sure. And it must have been a courage that he took with him into the camp. It wouldn't yes. have been something that he probably developed um from uh from nothing in that situation. I think it would have been something that he brought um into that camp. It's not really clear quite how he had so much courage and I think there's almost you could maybe say well he didn't talk about that so much in the book because he wanted to exercise a certain humility 
Yeah. And that that's probably true. I think there is also an issue that if you if he did start to speak about his own courage, which was obviously unusual in extent, then yeah. then it sort of is counterproductive to the sort of democratic aims of the book, if you see what I mean. I think so. Um, yeah. You know, anyway, because yeah. if 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 this courage was um, rather rare, as I imagine it was and is still, then you know, if you're trying to create and develop a therapy that is based around this this notion of cultivation, then there's going to be a certain tension there. I think that's true. I think you're right. And and again, I think because the style of the book is this kind of, you know, psych- psychiatrist, psychologist take, you know, he, you know, he, he talks about the, the various stages of kind of psychological adjustment that he, he's suggesting that, that prisoners in the camp went through, you know, from an initial yeah. experience of shock to kind of resignation. And, you know, he's obviously trying to suggest that to some degree, when faced with that stark brutality, mm. there's a kind of ability in human beings to to cope and find they can endure things they would have never imagined they could have. You know, he talks about sleeping and feeling like your your arm was nearly dislocated because yeah. you were so crammed in on these wooden bunks. And he said, but yet sleep would come. You know, you actually, even though it was the unbelievable uncomfortable conditions, somehow you did because you had to, because your body needed the the sleep, you know. So I think he is, yeah, I think you're right. He's wanting to, you know, I, I, I right, you know, understandably emphasise how much we've got more in us to endure and we, we, can, we can cope more than we might have thought and be more courageous. I, mean, that, I think that's all true. Know. Yeah, I think indeed, there's, yeah. there's a truth to that. Yeah. But but I, I don't know if that quite amounts to most people be able to achieve that level of courage that, that he had. He, he does seem to have had very fortuitously a, a combination of qualities that allowed him to endure those terrible circumstances because while he was a very intelligent man and somewhat intellectual, he also had a, whether it was instinctive or not, a sense that he he should not let his intellect in that situation roam too widely. But he he would keep it a bit under wraps. So there was a very pragmatic dimension of it's like he he did not want to look too starkly at the situation. So I'm not saying he was deceiving himself, but it's almost like he recognised on some level that there was almost like a healthy level of self-deception, you know, there. Yes. yes and that he, so. and he lived within that zone where he, he created his meaning. And uh, whereas someone might have saw it very clearly, very startly, and would have been daunted by the odds, and yeah. and maybe would have just fell into a pit of despair. Um, I mean, say for example, if Schopenhauer had been in the camps, yes. yep, would he would he have reacted like Frankel? Probably not. Yeah, um, there. I so, think so. So there is that. Um, yeah. And interestingly, Schopenhauer, as far as I'm aware, and some people have remarked on this themselves, never talks about courage in his works. Um, okay, yeah. You know, so, um, yeah. you know, you no, wonder think- what, what uh, a very clear-seeing thinker might have brought to that situation and how easy it would have been for them to survive psychologically, emotionally. 
Yes, I think that's an excellent point. I mean, it, 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 it was interesting, actually, because he, he talks at one point about when he was in the camps, you know, a few occasions where he was called upon to almost give a kind of, um, I suppose you could say, psychological pep talk, you know, to mm. try to keep others going when they were maybe at the, the point of giving up. And, he, and then he also, later in the book, I think he refers to, you know, almost like a similar strategy in a way with, with suicidal uh, patients, you know, whereby in a way he would use his kind of rhetorical powers to slightly refocus them or, or you know, shift mm. the perspective just to keep keep them going, you know, keep keep them yeah. alive. And and it was like he he did that with himself as well. I think I think you're right. Yeah. I think there was a there was a, just almost like a sense for that that he just you know he confined his his intellectual uh, wanderings within a a survival kind of kind of radius there. Really, didn't he? Just just because. Yeah, you know, I mean the. It's a yeah. I think the pep talk references, you know, what I was trying to say there. I think he gives himself a kind of pep talk, and I think he yeah. he was living out his circumstances in a bit of a Nietzschean way, you know, because Nietzsche had this view that truth had to serve life, and okay. and I think that Frankel understood that consciously or unconsciously that what he tells himself has to to serve his life. Yeah, and that there'd be certain aspects of that awful situation that, if they were articulated and focused upon, would not be uh, pro-life. No, 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 no. And so he I kept think... in that. That that's what I mean. I think he kept his intellect within a certain bounds, given the situation. I think you're quite right. Well, I mean, it's a, you know, obviously. Um, Later in the book, when he get, he goes on to talk about logotherapy, he, I think what maybe makes that that um, what you're describing there that that way of operating intellectually consistent actually with his outlook is the fact that he he had this belief that well both life is meaningful but the ultimate meaning is unknowable so mm. it kind of kept open this possibility for different viewpoints at different times to be legitimate actually and it's a question of what you know what is both meaningful and of course you know life enhancing mm. or life saving in any given moment is, is equally legitimate actually if you think the kind of ultimate truth is is perhaps unknowable yeah. um yeah and now I, I, just to i don't know um if we can maybe uh to look at the second yeah. question yeah. which is obviously linked to all of this you know which is what role do you think his, you know, the horrific experiences Franco had in the camps had in him coming to put meaning at the very centre of his psychotherapeutic outlook? Um, yeah, well, think? I mean, I, I think from the, at the most basic level, um, being in a situation where there seemed to be no future, uh, no sense of purpose, that you were being dehumanised, you were being used as a slave... Yeah. to to uh, do all these kind of jobs for companies, um, some of them that are still on the go, I believe. Um, right. wow. And uh, so that dehumanizing situation and that lack of a, a meaningful future would, I think, get someone as sensitive and as reflective as Frankel to, to think about meaning because there was such an a potential absence of it. He had to create it. He was not, you know, like he'd been, you know, like so many others, he'd been taken out of the network of his, you know, everyday meaningful life and thrown into this horrible situation where he had been displaced and estranged from his former life. And there was, you know, certainly no promise of a future 
Um, yep. And that would get you thinking about meaning. In its absence, you would recognize how fundamental it is. Um, so I think yeah. that's what got him reflecting on meaning because he'd been put in a situation where um, what he ordinarily took for granted was no longer there or didn't seem to be there and had to be created. It'd be almost like, you know, we go about with uh, our usual sense of we take justice or good behaviour, you know, as the norm. Not to say that yeah. it's always like that, but we take a sense of fairness and safety generally is the norm, but then you could get thrown into the Stanford prison experiment, which probably would then get you thinking about justice and fairness and oppression <laughs> and violence. Yes, indeed. And yeah, so he absolutely. was in the sort of equivalent in the meaning sense. I see, yeah. So I think that yeah. was one of the reasons why he was so focused on that, really, because there was no... that There seemed to be no promising future, whereas most of us go about with a sense of that and yeah, I, we have that meaning yeah i know i think you're right i mean it's interesting because he, he was obviously you know self-conscious of the fact that he was an unusually intellectual guy he was he was put in these circumstances and he actually talks at one point in the book you know where he contrasts his view on the issue of of meaning with some of the other uh, prisoners you know he talks about that most people he thinks had the belief that if they weren't guaranteed to survive the camps then the, the, all their suffering was just meaningless you mm. know it was wasted but he he act you know he likes to sort of distinguish his own viewpoint from that and but by saying that he felt that um suffering itself has to be a meaningful act because otherwise you're just you're in the realm of happenstance you know random chance some will survive some won't and if if only you know those that happen to survive the meaning was was relevant to them. He says that's a, that's a, a life not worth living, you know. So for him, the suffering itself has to be meaningful as well, you know. So it's like he came down on the idea that, you know, meaning has to be everywhere and always attainable in the most extreme cases. Actually, you know, that uh, was yes, his kind of yeah. resolution there. Well, that um, that's which, true. That was his fundamental conviction. Yeah, and he had this simplistic but powerful formula, which was despair equals suffering minus meaning. Okay. And yep. so for Frankel, because they were in such horrific circumstances, because the suffering was so pervasive and so vile, the only way it could be endured, if we look at his equation, is yep. is to add is to find meaning in it. Because yeah. without meaning we would fall into the most profound despair. So I think suffer because it was such wretched suffering, it was hell on earth, the antidote from his point of view was meaning because meaning gave a, a purpose or gave a sense in which we could endure, tolerate and move forward from it. And that's a, he thought meaning had to be the antidote to, to that because otherwise the suffering would be meaningless and being meaningless, we would fall into despair, we would give up hope, we would psychologically and spiritually die, and then yes. we would probably die anyway. Yeah, uh, without doubt. I mean, what, what I find quite interesting about Franklin and his, you know, the way he came to to, to, to look at meaning is that, you know, there's the, this famous quote from Nietzsche, which he himself puts. Can you remember the quote, the he who has a... Yeah, he who has a why can withstand any how. 
That's it. Thank you. Yes. Uh, and, you know, so obviously, as we've been discussing, you can see why in those dire circumstances, somebody would would adopt that viewpoint. But at the same time, obviously, we can't just reduce it to, to you know, purely a kind of defensive outlook because obviously it endured, you know, far beyond his time in the camps. You know, it became actually the centrepiece of his therapeutic outlook, actually, to, you know, it's like he really truly believed that everything was meaningful and meanings were always to be found in concrete situations, you know. So I do find that interesting in a way that you can see why there would be a kind of defensive need for somebody like him to adopt that viewpoint. Yeah, it I was mean, one what, what retained, we, you know. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, obviously in that, situation um i mean you know in that desperate situation because desperation is not the death of hope it is at the outer extremity of hope if you see what i mean yeah. when you're in a desperate situation you're trying to find any hope which would mean any meaning that could be redemptive to your situation yep. So we can see why meaning would be so important. I think, you know, Frankl had a faith in meaning. Yes. And what I mean by that is that this view that anything could be made meaningful and that meaningful could that meaning could be redemptive is a faith in meaning. Um, you know, it, it is no matter how bad it gets, there is a meaning that is um redemptive in some vague way and i see that as a kind of faith in meaning yes, i'm not sure i'm so. not sure it is something that is actually true yeah. um I, i'm really not sure that that is true because i think some people find them i mean probably most philosophers have the view and probably people that aren't philosophers that there are situations where somebody's life is so so poor in quality yeah. that ending it is rational okay and okay you might say that that doesn't mean that there isn't some meaning but the meaning isn't really enough isn't it in that situation it's not enough yeah. to allow you to go on. I mean, this is something that I think a philosopher like David Benatar would argue. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a really, it's an interesting one. I mean, I, I suppose if, you know, Frankl felt kind of from within his own experiences, he, he, he kind of discovered in almost the bleakest imaginable circumstances a human being could find themselves in. You know, he, he found a remedy there, you know, through emphasizing meaning thinking about the future and future possibilities to actualize and so on i guess it does make sense how you think well that has an almost kind of universal therapeutic naturally yeah. value you know yeah but it's an interesting one i think i mean i do think that um he really did believe that it's, it's, i think you're right to mention faith because i think it does come certainly in that book i know he's written more extensively you know about logotherapy and the the kind of um rationale behind it but it does seem like there is a kind of simply an assertion that meaning is there to be had there are these universal meanings that we can't quite understand but they are they are there and we're part of that so there is a kind of religious quality to, to franco i think that's definitely yeah case, yeah yeah you know, i mean I whether whether he was religious or not in the usual sense there is a, a religious degree you know there is a religious element in terms of this faith in meaning yes and i exactly. can i understand i take your point that given that he had 
faced literally hell on earth yeah. and he found meaning in it that he would then believe that that could be transferred to other yeah. situations that other people no matter what situation they were in could find some kind of redemptive meaning i could see why you would believe in that yeah. um the thing is though i'm not really sure that that would always be the case which is not to say that it isn't maybe the case a lot of the time or some yeah. of the time. Yeah. But I think if you were, you know, facing a client that, you know, had suffered a number of personal tragedies and felt despair, you would have to believe in that meaning to try and facilitate them to see a meaning beyond what had happened to them or what includes what happened to them. But you yes. couldn't guarantee it in advance, couldn't you? And it no, could and it could no. indeed be the case that after many years of logotherapy, somebody still can't find some redemptive meaning. They might feel and this is something that David Benatar says in his book, The Human Predicament, that that uh, sometimes the quality of life or what has happened in life goes past a certain point of no return. Yep. And I think that's probably true in some cases. But what I would say is you couldn't necessarily determine that in advance. No. Um, I mean, I think what's difficult... I mean, the thing is, obviously, as we were discussing earlier, Franco was that was this rare individual who had these capacities, such as ability to, to self-detach and, 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 you know, resist fear. And he had a lot of things going for him in a way that would make him more able to endure and find meaning in such dire circumstances that you couldn't just, you know, assume or even necessarily, you know, somebody might not be able to develop that to, to that degree. And, and so, therefore, how they maybe find meaning quite in the way that Frankel could and in, in you know the, the the most extreme cases you know it, it is a bit unclear I think, I think that's true yeah well yeah, yeah. I, I'm just saying that it probably could be assumed in advance no exactly it would depend so. on the person and their situation that they're in and how they see it and what capacities they bring to it and how they feel particularly impacted by what's happened to them. Yes, I, um, I think so. And so yeah, there's I mean, a lot it's... of factors in that. That It's probably the case that most people, particularly with some help, therapeutic help, could find some, some kind of redemptive meaning. Yeah. Again, so even if you do, is it going to be enough? That's another issue. Yes. And I, I'm just thinking that what would have been the case for Frankel if he'd survived those camps and then nobody wanted to publish his book and maybe yeah. family members died, you know, of cancer or whatever. Yeah. And some other things happened. And, and so he felt, he could have felt decimated by that. And maybe that along with Auschwitz, yeah, it was difficult. Yeah. To, to, to find a redemptive meaning there. Um, I mean, I think he. I think that there's there's even one point. Does he not mention the fact that you know for for people who survived the camps, you know they 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 all tended to have an image of something. You know, it could have been like a family they wanted mm. to return to or a home. And then he does actually mention the fact that some then did and were yeah. you know maybe their 
their partner was no longer there, no longer alive, and yeah. it was a kind of crushing disappointment. And he, he, he really just kind of then suggests that, well, you know, people then need to find another meaning to pursue and another, you know, but there, there is a kind of problem there, really, isn't there? When, well, you know, what, that- what I'm just saying is that, well, when I say just, I think it is an important point. What I'm saying is there's a gap there. You know, yeah. Frankl see, seeing it as rather seamless, and and in reality, if he had returned, wife is dead, other members of family are dead, his book doesn't get published, and so on, and he's in despair. He's saying, "Well, you find another meaning." But but I mean, meaning isn't like a bus that there's always one every ten minutes. You know, I mean, um, well, maybe that's not, maybe that's a bit unfair to. Him, but what I'm just saying is there is a gap there between the loss of perceived meaning and meaning coming or being created. And in that gap, there is no certainty, as far as I'm concerned, that that meaning will be found. No, I mean, I suppose, I mean, obviously he, you know, he includes suffering as, as a as a, a possible um, source of meaning, mm. but only in only insofar as the suffering is geared towards a more positive future that can be, that can be realised, you know. So yeah. there, there is a problem when 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 all all avenues might seem to be shut down, you know. That yeah, I think you're right with case. You know, it's not necessarily always going to work that that uh, approach. Not guess, necessarily. You know? I mean, I could obviously see why you would want it to be a conviction, and yeah. and uh, and to have faith in it. Because if you have faith in it, then you're more likely to find that meaning. Yes, but it doesn't true. mean to say though. That that will inevitably be found. You know, that idea actually about the power of belief and about, you know, um, how, you know, beliefs can be self-fulfilling prophecies is actually something that that's used in logotherapy mm. in terms of us treating things like um anticipatory anxieties mm. and things but um in terms of just the the logotherapy itself so obviously we, we, we've alluded to it a number of times but as you understand it how what's what's kind of the essence of it in, in terms of how it might differ from other forms of psychotherapy well i think he, he positioned himself quite differently to freud because you know, Freud was one of the people that he wanted to distinguish himself from. And so, you know, Freud's emphasis on pleasure hedonism, as it could be called, you know, the will to pleasure. Yeah. Um, you know, Frankl did not see that as central as Freud did. He did not see it as our primary motivation, but more the will to to purpose to meaning so in that way logotherapy is quite different from um pleasure seeking as freud would see it i mean probably probably frankl would say that logotherapy was more humanistic than freud's uh you know therapy because you know frankl emphasizes meaning he emphasizes choice he emphasizes moral responsibility so yes. he, he sort of, um, you you could say that for better or for worse, he expects more from human beings in terms of yeah. what they can become than what uh, 
Freud did. I mean, Freud's view was that uh, taking a neurotic from the point of misery to normal and happiness, whereas it seems that Frankl is uh, saying that, uh, you know, our lives may have suffering, our will to pleasure is actually a poor foundation to yeah. base our life on, because a lot of the time our pleasures, um, we don't re reap many pleasures, whereas meaning can still be found. Uh, there. So, yeah, I think he would see himself as being more moral, more humanistic, more about the self-actualizing of individuals compared to psychoanalysis. At least that's how he would see it. De definitely. I mean, he's he's really, I mean, you can tell how appalled he is by the, the notion that, say, like our higher needs and, and wishes are just sublimations of, yeah. you know, base or need. I mean, that, that kind of notion. I mean, he says something about, I wouldn't be willing to live for my defence mechanisms. Or, you know, he has, he's really, yeah. um, and, he, and yeah. so it's definitely, I think humanistic is, is the word. I mean, it's, it's definitely much more in keeping with the idea that we do have, you know, higher as well as these kind of more pleasure-seeking, lower, Lower, you know, yeah, lower, I mean, I uh, think he was trying to create a, a more spiritually oriented therapy compared to what he would have saw as the materialism of Freud's therapy. And I sure. mean, you could yep. see why he would also object to Freud's view because, you know, Freud had thought that in the psyche it was the great war between the pleasure principle and the reality principle. Now, if that was uh, the conflict the archetypal conflict in the human psyche. Well, imagine it then how that would play out in Auschwitz because, well, how much pleasures are there to be had? Not many. Yeah. 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 Uh, what is the reality principle? You know, Freud had told, you know, his patients, as he'd call them, that, you know, facing rea reality is therapeutic. Well, face reality there, it's so bloody bleak. Um, so right. you could see why... Frankl might think that that perspective, that therapy, wouldn't be that therapeutic in an Auschwitz situation. Um, sure. And probably on some subtle level, Frankl believed that, you know, this world would be not like Auschwitz in general, but certainly, you know, not particularly pleasant and suffering being ubiquitous. So founding yeah. a therapy on pleasure he would have thought would have been a profound mistake. I think I think you're spot on. Yeah, I mean it's. I mean he, he definitely sees logotherapy as something. I think you're right about a, a more spiritual kind of therapy, deeper. I think he, there was one point he says every therapy must, in some way, no matter how restricted, be logotherapy because I think I th and I think he's got a good point actually that particularly in a sort of age where maybe nihilism is you know kind of. Pro proliferating in response to things like the war and breakdown of religion and, and these kinds of things, you know, there is that he calls it this existential vacuum, doesn't he? That yeah. people people experience, and and it really, if if you if what you've got to offer them is you know the pleasure principle and the reality principle, that isn't really great, you know, from a therapeutic viewpoint, or it's certainly not entirely satisfying. I wouldn't have thought. And also, I think there is just, it doesn't seem to, I mean, he's critical of this kind of mechanistic view of human beings as the, these kind of systems that just want to have tension, you know, released. And, mm. you know, he, he talks about, you know, tension as a positive thing, you know, in terms of achieving higher values and, you know, as, yeah, again, obviously making life something more meaningful and something richer. So I think, you know, I guess, I guess that there was a lot, you know, a lot that he was trying to weave in there that maybe he felt was missing from 
kind of traditional I think so, yeah. I mean, he, he, he wouldn't have believed in Freud's view about sublimation, you know, turning carnal desires into something um, more solution, socially productive, you know, like works of art. I don't think he would have saw it that way, Frankel. Uh, he would have saw the desire to create as a legitimate thing, uh, a desire in its own place, uh, you know, in its own right not something that was a sublimation or some more animal-like instinct. Um, no. You know, he, he did not see us, as as you've pointed out, as in this mechanistic sort of way, you know, trying to satisfy instincts, and that's just what we were. He saw us in a more human way and in a more spiritual way. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. and, and he would have thought that, as you say, if we neglect the spiritual element, then this existential vacuum... It's just going to smother and envelop us, and um, we wouldn't we wouldn't be able to tackle it. I thought it was interesting that he, you know, he, there's one point where he says a logotherapist, he says is, is like an eye surgeon um, helping a person to see to see the possibilities of meaning without specifying, you know, or implying any particular value judgments about what they should or shouldn't find mm. meaningful. Mm. Um, I thought that was interesting because to me, I don't know how you felt about this. Obviously, Frankel saw it as quite an objective process, but there does do, do seem to be kind of some implicit values that come with logotherapy. I think what well, we've mentioned the kind of spiritual dimension yeah, but, yeah. but what, what what did you think is it is it is it is quite as an objective a, a process um is, is that or? well this idea of being like an eye surgeon so the person could see i mean yeah. you know as he said himself noticing possibilities is a key aspect of finding meaning i don't think that yep. that is uh, controversial but the idea that it would be value-free or he would be simply liberating them so they could see in this direct way doesn't yeah. seem quite credible in in that sure. way because clearly logotherapy has its value system and its perspective. And, you know, that is going to influence a client that is working with a logotherapist, surely. How they yes. look... How they look at their situation, because logotherapy is going to be an interpretive lens like any other. I mean, it may allow the client to see things that another kind of therapy might not, but yeah. it doesn't mean to say that it's completely transparent glass. No, I don't. I, I find. I mean, again, I'm not. I don't. You know, know know enough about log logotherapy to make any definitive judgment on it but it, it does seem like Frankel's perspective that you know there has to be a kind of a degree of faith there not necessarily the person who needs to be religious specifically but there is there's certainly um a, you know his perspective on meaning and the will to meaning and so on does kind of require a certain amount of faith in that in that viewpoint really it's not a kind of you know a, a completely um, clear lens there t to me in that sense. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, this is something we'll be talking about in a minute, but, you know, his emphasis on the will to me is what yeah. makes logotherapy distinctive, but it isn't necessarily what everybody is motivated by or concerned with. Sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, most people want their lives to be meaningful, that's for sure. But the yeah. degree to which their focus on meaning will vary. Well, 
I mean, obviously he, I mean, as you said, you know, this issue of the will to meaning is, is central. And, and he, the way Frankel describes it is that we have a will to meaning. And in fact, will say things like the will to pleasure or the will to power are actually, in his view, almost like a kind of slight distortion of that deeper underlying will to meaning. So it's a bit like when you're in a state of, I guess, despair or frustration, you might then experience more of a kind of direct will to pleasure. But he, he's saying this will to meaning is really at the core of us and something that we all have and would all be pursuing in a, in a kind of ideal scenario but yeah. yeah it's 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 difficult that i think to me it maybe again it's kind of going to the other extreme of of the kind of freudian view of the pleasure seeking it's maybe just i don't know maybe maybe a step too far to say it's, it's quite as definitively as that i would have thought well one of the the terms that we use in the therapy world for this is schoolism you know where okay. a school of therapy you know wants to promote itself against other schools you know almost like it's found the revelatory truth yeah and you know what frankl is talking about is very important whether oh, yeah. it, whether it is the motive or the uber motive is another claim altogether and yeah. I think it's maybe stretching it too far because I think human beings are motivated by a number of things that are important in different ways. Um, the will to meaning, the idea that the will to power and the will to pleasure are degenerate versions of the will to, to meaning seems implausible to me. Uh, I do believe that... In certain circumstances, that's true. Yep. But to say that it's always the case seems to be stretching it uh, quite a bit. Because, I mean, you know, just, just to give you an example, because I don't think that the, the, the will to the will to meaning and the will to power, power being interpreted as status and things like that, I don't yep. actually think they're mutually exclusive. Um, I mean, you know, say like since we've had our jubilee, weekend just there i'm sure yep. members of the royal family think that being in that family confers meaning and status together yep and that they're actually intertwined um yep you know that it'd be hard to separate them out and i don't think you just have to be a member of the royal family to feel that it could be if you're the ceo of your own company yep. uh that that the will to power and the will to meaning are intertwined and, and one isn't a degenerate version of the other. Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting because he mentions, you know, surveys done, I think, you know, with students where you're asked, right, what's your, you're, you're at university, what do you want to do first and foremost? Does it make money or is it have a, you know, have a, a life where you make a, you know, you find your path and, and most will tend to go for the, the you know, the deeper one. They'll, they'll say that, yeah, first and foremost, I would like to have a meaningful life. But I think you're right. I mean, it doesn't mean actually it's one or the other. You know, it, it, and yeah, it doesn't but, mean they're, they're... No, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't. And I mean, the thing is, Stephen, that if he put it as, what do you want first and foremost? I mean, that's a bit like when Sir Humphrey talked about doing surveys, that the way you phrase the question, um, <laughs> you know, sort of frames the kind of answer you're going to get. Because even if somebody did say a meaningful life is what I want first and foremost... That doesn't imply, though, that status and things like that are degenerate or versions of the will to meaning, though, does it? 
Uh, no, I think I, I, exactly. I mean, I th- it's funny because you mentioned Schopenhauer earlier and, you know, Franco mentioned Schopenhauer in the book, actually. And, and it's like the thing that maybe he and, and me or others, Freud and so on, to, to maybe a lesser degree have in common is this idea that of trying to find a unified, you know, will of us, you know, obviously Schopenhauer, it's the will to life. Mm. But it doesn't necessarily need to be one single primary drive necessarily underneath us. You know, it does No, seem I mean, like, the, the thing is, can, th- this is yeah. probably something that... Um, you know, Wittgenstein would say that, he, you know, he spoke a lot about what he called this craving for generality. So, you know, trying to put one explanation or one meaning of a word or one understanding of a phenomenon as, as privileged as yeah. and, and actually losing out on the complexities of the situation. And I think you're very, I think you're very right that, that Schubert had his will to live, Nietzsche had his will to power, so did Adler, and Frankl has his will to meaning. But, you know, they don't need to be in competition with each other, and somebody like Wittgenstein would say that um, this is capturing the different flavours of willing and the complexities of it, and to privilege one over the other is a, is a, is a distortion. And, you know, somebody like David Smale might be even tempted to say that it's a means to carve out some kind of territory, some kind of niche where your therapy is better than others. Yep. Yeah, I, I think I think there is definitely a, a bit of a risk of that here. Um, I mean, I, I think certainly, I mean, you know, obviously emphasising meaning and emphasising that we have these kind of higher values that we aspire to that drive us rather than it simply being power and pleasure. You know, that that is a good thing. It's not obviously to say that, you know, that this isn't a really useful no, point to me. No, because no, I think, no, no. I think he's right in his critique yeah, of, no, of prior. Well, you know, he, he, think, he is, he is. And, and I mean, you know, few people would dispute that. But really, yeah. what what I'm what I'm saying here is that yes, things like pleasure and power could become most unproductive and most damaging if taken to excess. Obviously, yep. yep. Um, on the other hand, though, while you know, so in other words, a materialistic view could end up overemphasizing the virtue of pleasure. I get that. Yeah. most people would yeah. get that. But there is an opposite danger that isn't really talked about so much, which is if you try and spiritualize things too much. And so, you know, the, the things like pleasure, it, it ends up becoming um, too solemn, too, scrup- you know, scrupulosity, really, you know, because meaning yes. kind of dominates your view too much. So I think we can overemphasize meaning as well. We could overemphasize meaning to the point that we might actually devalue unnecessarily and unhealthily certain basic pleasures. I, I completely agree. I mean, that that was very much what struck me. You know, obviously, again, when Frankel talks about the idea that we need to always relieve tension within our being, you know, within our kind of organism. Um, that, that, yeah, that's that's it's a fair point. We don't always need to do that, but we do need, to, you know, we can enjoy food, we can enjoy rest and sleep, and you know, these things um, are legitimate basic 
pleasurable activities that are not really so much to do with meaning, but I don't think actually it's maybe right to to downplay them too much either. You know, well, part yes. of the kind of healthy life. You know, I think I think that that just I know maybe Frankel himself would say, well, of course that's kind of common sense, but there is just maybe a sense of the the spiritual being so emphasised in his viewpoint that maybe there's a little bit of a loss of the the basics in a way actually. You know, that that are also important. I thought. Yeah, well, there there is. Yeah, I mean, it could end up being too solemn, so you might have a a mathematician working during the day on their theorem or a a philosopher writing the chapter of their latest book and then after that you know they they found it meaningful and they want a bit of rest but they then think oh it's got to be meaningful in that so I'm not going to watch Beat the Chasers because that's just pleasurable and that you know and it starts to feel a bit unhealthy doesn't it? Because believe it or not these sort of things that are more everyday and pleasurable are part of a, 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 you know, a healthy life. And I think that, yeah, we mustn't let meaning contaminate our perspective to the point that we devalue basic pleasures. Also, to be fair, pleasure and meaning could be intertwined. I mean, say if you're a, if you're a wine taster, you know, like you, you love your wines, pleasure and meaning are intertwined there. Yes. The same if you're a film critic. Pleasure and meaning are intertwined there. I think so, yeah, exactly. So, you know, that again, you know, in this attempt to to make meaning the uber motive, yeah. it ends up potentially downplaying or distorting the other aspects, meaning, status, these things that are goods if they're not yeah. taken to excess. And um, I think so. I think, I mean, I think as you say it, yeah, the, the kind of slight solemn tone was kind of what I was maybe picking up on because I thought it was interesting. And in, in the, the section I mentioned earlier, when he, he, he sort of makes the, the claim that logotherapists are kind of value free and that they help you to discover your own meaning, you know, it's only a few pages later that there's an interesting quote where he, about, about sex where he says that sex is justified, even sanctified, as soon as, but only as long as it is a vehicle for love. And I thought, you know, he was obviously making a point about love and sex there, but it was very much like he was making it clear in that, that, um, you know, he doesn't approve of of sex in situations where it's not a vehicle for love. He says, but as long as, you know. So again, that, you know, obviously that's not, you know, obviously people have their own take on that one. But, you know, again, he's really, he's not interested in the kind of pleasure aspect there. You know, it's very much kind of the the more spiritual. Well, yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's a really good example because sex would be the point of contention for him, you know, because, you know, if meaning is pivotal, then sex can't just be tied, just tied to pleasure. It has to be linked to meaning, which then means it's linked to love. And I mean, nobody's going to deny that uh, the deeper experience would be connected to love of course of course yeah but on the other hand it doesn't mean to say that sex that is undertaken purely for pleasure is a sin you know secular or otherwise i think again that is taking it too far yeah, I mean, it was it was a bit like I mean, I guess I mean it makes sense given Frankel's experiences. You know, he he was able to endure this period in his life where all the simple pleasures, you know, comfort, food, everything was removed, and he still survived. You know, and he, and he survived yeah. by focusing on meaning. So it's almost a bit like that's maybe 
understandably, you know, led him to not put too much value actually on the simple pleasures yeah. of life because you can still achieve in spite of very little in that regard. You can still go on, yeah. you can still find meaning. So, but I, but but I think yeah, that's true. I think that's very true that he sort of carried that perspective over, but a little bit inflexibly, because the way in which Auschwitz was an impoverishing experience wasn't only to do with meaning. It was also to do with things like basic pleasures. Um, It was also to do with being dignified the status of being a human being. Instead, they were all just these numbers, these nameless workers, you know, it was the opposite to getting a promotion, yeah, yeah. right? Well, so you were in a yeah, world where yeah. there was no basic ple- pleasures, there was no opportunity to stand out in a positive way and receive status, you know, your will to power. And there was also, it was very difficult to find meaning in it. So on all three counts, it was tremendously impoverishing, not only to yes. do with meaning. But yeah. because he learned to, to live and thrive in a way, through focus on meaning, he then carried that over to situations that are not as dire straits as that. But, you know, like, obviously his patients that he was seeing in the post-war world were probably capable of having their basic pleasures and they probably had a degree of status in their working lives and so on. And meaning was something that was maybe more lacking. But that doesn't mean to say that these other things weren't as important in, in different ways. I, I definitely. I mean, it's 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 a mixed bag, isn't it? Because I mean, on the one hand, I think he was absolutely right that logotherapy and his perspective um, had some good answers to provide to some of the maladies of that society to do with meaninglessness and nihilism and so on. But on the other hand, you could also say that you know some of the problems of the modern world that are to do with people maybe. Um, working too hard, you know, burning themselves out, you know, that that you know, maybe um, there's maybe a slight slight issue there that where where sometimes it are the most simple solutions that are needed, you know, the kind of in terms of re- reduction attention and 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 rest. Well, yes, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, we, also, we all know people you know, that that work too hard and don't have enough pleasure. You know, it's become some kind of puritanical do- devotion to their work. We all know that people that do that, that have got yes. a lack of um, pleasure. and yeah. But they might find their lives quite meaningful. And, you know, Benatar yeah. in his book, he gives the example of Kafka, Franz Kafka, that he says that Kafka's life was very meaningful in as far as the works that he'd written have then had this impact on uh, human culture, but he said that it was quite a joyless life. So yep. we've got an example of, you know, if you know Ka- uh, Kafka went to to Frankel um, for therapy, say that yeah. you know maybe Kafka found his life meaningful, but he was very unhappy, and yeah. logotherapy certainly wouldn't be the answer there.
So that brings us nicely then to, to the final question, really having kind of unpacked some of the, the pros and cons of logotherapy, which is that, you know, what, what kind of client do you think would particularly benefit from the kind of logotherapeutic approaches that Franco kind of describes? Well, you could see, you know, depressed clients, particularly despairing clients as being perhaps the clients most suitable for logotherapy because despair is this sense of there being no redemptive meaning, no sense of hope in your circumstances. Somebody in despair might have plenty of money. They might have, um, you know, a prestigious position in society. And yet there is this this void. And if we see it in terms of Maslow, we, we can understand why people that have had uh, their will to pleasure and will to power satisfied might actually be more acutely aware of the vacuum yeah. than people that wear pleasure and status or something that they have to fight for. Uh, I mean, again, we don't want to overgeneralize. I mean, it is possible for people that are uh, trying to, you know, satisfy their survival needs to still have a, uh, an issue with meaning. Of course, that's possible. But probably as a general rule, it would be people that actually have these other uh, desires satisfied, but they haven't found uh, meaning, something that gives them a real sense of purpose, something that they can orientate their self around. However, you know, because Frankl believes that things like anger and aggression are connected to a lack of meaning, he would probably propose that if a client comes in that has an anger issue, that that is a meaning problem. But again, I think this is an example of where we're maybe overextending um, the remit of meaning, because I think it's possible for a client to have an anger issue and yet they find their lives quite meaningful. Yeah, it's it, it, yeah. I think so. I mean, it, see, it struck me because yeah, obviously one thing he emphasises a lot is is about responsibility, you know, and and, yeah. and the fact that you know life pr- provides these potentialities that we can choose to embrace or not. And it, it kind of struck me that you know because he, he mentions the idea about the the kind of depression and so on that would come say if somebody was long term unemployed you know and they didn't that you know so they weren't able to engage in a kind of purposeful activity of course they would also be suffering from potentially suffering from lower self-esteem and lower you know being able to meet the material needs as well but i kind of wondered whether you know i mean because he, he, he sort of there's a kind of glib um synopsis of logotherapy he gives at the start when he talks about an anecdote where he says compared to psycho you know compared to psychoanalysis rather than lying down and you know, talking about unpleasant things, you maybe sit up and hear some unpleasant things, you know, and there's yeah. maybe a wee bit of a suggestion that it could be a bit of a, you know, encouragement of people to take on more responsibility. Yeah. And, you know, so there could be, I, I could envision, you know, cases where somebody who's maybe lapsed a little bit and maybe isn't pushing themselves in ways that they could be to to feel better about themselves actually could potentially um, maybe benefit well, <clears throat> from that kind of approach yeah. as well. Um, I mean, I would yeah. agree with you that, that Frankl believes that clients that have gone down an anti-social route are lacking in a sense of meaning, which he connects to a lack of responsibility. But there is a danger, at least for us that are more, you know, left-wing in our outlook, that this emphasis on responsibility could be counterproductive, you know, with a client that was unemployed. Yes, because yes. 
it might be blaming them for their misfortunes that aren't personally chosen. And I think that that would be very wrong. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm sure I read that he actually had quite a right-wing political outlook in some ways, Frankel, or some people have said that. I don't really know. But while, again, while responsibility is a key thing to emphasise for a meaningful, happy life, we've yep. got to be careful about just assuming that if someone is in an unfortunate position, that a lack of responsibility is the cause of that. I oh, think that absolutely. could be very dangerous and misleading. Yes. Again, no, I think, point. you know... I don't know how many unemployed people were coming to his prestigious clinic. Um, oh, probably course, not yeah. many in, in his private work anyway. But if yeah. he was working with the, those clients, you, you would have to very carefully work out how much responsibility is an issue and to what extent. And you could just assume that because they were in the position of being unemployed that that was to do with irresponsibility. No, uh, there. Um, I think that. Yeah, I think, I think again I think that's, that's the danger of seeing psychological health as solely to do with what is happening inwardly, because obviously people are put in very unfortunate situations that have a big impact on their emotional health that are not chosen yes. and are oh, difficult to escape yeah. from. Yeah. I think that's a that's an important qualification there. He, I mean, he does he, he uses this um, metaphor of the idea of you know he talks about an arch, you know, a, a, you know, as in if you imagine a ruined building, and you know the way that sometimes a an arch that's crumbling is fixed is by putting more pressure on yeah. it, more weight on it rather than less. That you know to make the point, you know, understandable again that you know we shouldn't just assume what we need to do with people who are struggling or in distress yeah. is remove all responsibility. No, no, no. You know, no, so we, no. I, I mean, I think, but I think you're, I think it's very important, as you say, to take on a case by case. It has basis to be very much assume. case by case. And I think yes, this is the yes. danger about a lot of these schools of therapy is that because they come out with a general theory, it ends up yeah. not being case by case. And yep. um, so, yeah, the extent to which responsibility is a factor will vary often quite profoundly from case to case, and we can't really assume it in advance. I mean, some people have argued that Frankel's sense of responsibility exceeds even what a, a court of criminal law would assume. Okay, really? Wow. In other words, he has quite a strict, and some people might argue punitive, sense of what responsibility is. I mean, obviously, that should be a surprise to us because our very first episode was on the issue of free will and determinism. Yes. And, you know, Frankel is a, a great example of a libertarian in the free will sense. In other words, that we have free will. We can exercise choice at any point. Yeah. And... Um, well, based on what we said in that episode, I think we don't find that um, very credible. So, I mean, the thing no. is that I think a valuable therapeutic message is to try and encourage clients to exercise whatever responsibility they can muster given who they are at the time and the circumstances they're in. But yeah. what you should yeah. expect from them if expect is even the right word, because it can start to become a burden that you place on a client. But certainly, 
you know, what is possible will vary depending on who the client is up to that point in terms of their, you know, their their background, their historical circumstances, their particular situation they're in as well. What kind of level yeah. responsibility is possible? Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, actually, and- you know, you can imagine circumstances where if you were dealing with a client, say, that was unemployed, that maybe the most therapeutic thing to hear is how uh, the circumstances they're in are not of their choosing, that they're not responsible for them. I mean, that could be the most therapeutic thing. Yes. But, uh, yeah, where I would go with Frankel in that situation is that, and, you know, the client would no doubt be up for this as well, is trying to find the most constructive response to their situation. But maybe responsibility isn't really the the lingo for that kind of situation. No. And I think, I I suppose maybe just to to, to give Frankel a kind of... um, you know, uh, maybe a, a bit more input there. I think, he, I mean, he. I think he, he at one point he talks about the fact that in, in the United States there is a bit of an issue where people who are, say, unemployed and so on are, or are miserable or are in a position of suffering are, are often made to feel bad about the fact that they're not happy, you know, and he and he obviously is keen to emphasise that, you know, there's meaning to be found there. So I, th- I think I think his, you know, I, I think it would maybe be a little unfair to, to suggest he would be too kind of harsh or, you know, kind of um, condemnatory, you know, when encountering somebody who maybe had had a lot of no, suffering. No, I mean, I don't, I don't think he would have life. been condemnatory. I'm sure he would have been as empathic as any good therapist would be. But what, yeah. I'm, what I'm saying is that there could be certain assumptions that impact what you're ultimately, or influence what you're ultimately saying. So you could have a therapist that is very empathic, but if they have a view that the, you could always take responsibility, you know, that yeah, then that yeah. is going to subtly influence how they work with that client. And I would argue may actually impair their empathy or put a burden of expectation Again, I'm speaking about certain cases. I'm not talking about this as so or it's always the case. No, no, no. I, I think, I mean, in terms of the free will point, I mean, I think there is a bit of an inconsistency with Frankel that on the one hand, he, he's saying, you know, we have this inner freedom to choose our own attitude to our suffering, to our circumstances. But he does also emphasise other points, you know, the the kind of personal qualities that, that go into making so, somebody like himself more able to uh, experience life meaningfully yeah. so that you know how much there's freedom versus how much there's just innate factors that some people are more able to do that you know i think is maybe a little bit a little bit tricky there you know well i mean if if, if we look at it from a determin a determinist perspective i mean there's been people like bruce waller a, a determinist philosopher that has came out with a version of that argument, which he calls the fairness argument. And we, we don't need to go into it here, but I think what he would be saying is that how people reacted in Auschwitz would be to do with their innate qualities and their early history and their and their, their background. And that that determined how they cope with Auschwitz because it determines how they cope with anything. And he would say they were not responsible for whatever capacities that they brought to that situation. Sure. And 
To me, that seems more credible. That doesn't mean to say, though, that people can't cultivate more of those Frankel-like capacities. They might not be able to cultivate it to Frankel's point. Some of them might even be able to cultivate it beyond a Frankel. But just like how some people uh, could be brilliant mathematicians or you know, or good mathematicians or or maybe not good mathematicians, you know, and, and, and it's the same with courage and the capacity to find meaning. Clearly, if we want to put it in a, a kind of crude way that, that because of innate qualities and his own background, Frankel had the knack to find meaning. Yeah. He had the knack. But, yeah. but you know, that is something that he brought with him to Auschwitz and he discovered profoundly in Auschwitz, that he had that knack. But if somebody didn't have that knack, I don't think that's because of a failure to take responsibility or that they could just develop that. It's very much an issue that has to be resolved with time or, or, you know, time will tell. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think when you think, you know, thinking again about the kind of Maslow perspective. I mean, I like the fact that Frankel, you know, he he emphasizes the self-transcendence, you know, that he's, you know, for him growth, you know, and meaning is found when the self, rather than just kind of going into itself, it, it connects with things in the world, you know, so mm. he, I think that's quite useful. But obviously, that process is a bit like a kind of virtuous circle in a way, you know, if, if you're somebody that can do that, that can find those meanings by connecting with things in the world and grow in a deep sense, you're also likely to be somebody that has that little bit more ability to choose your own attitudes you know not be so reactive to things and not be quite so you know um stuck in a way you know more, more able to change as you as you were describing in that way um but but yeah the problem is how how do you get to that point you know we can't just choose to be that it's not as simple as just a matter of choice really you know so there's there's circumstances come in again there obviously you know there's circumstances you know. that come in and there's also innate capacities that probably come in too Yes, exactly. And so, like, in descriptive psychology, uh, a a branch of psychology, they talk about this idea of uh, personal characteristics, and they have this sort of equation that personal characteristics equal capacities plus history. And what they mean is that to actually have any personal characteristic, you've got to have had originally the capacity and the the historical background to cultivate it. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, because you can imagine somebody might have a capacity which their environment never cultivates. So in the case of Frankel, he had that personal characteristic of noble courage, but that came from a capacity and a history that predated Auschwitz. Yes. And allowed them then to face that situation with a courage that was uncommon. Now, it is the case that logotherapy could probably encourage more people to develop those characteristics. Yes. And in that way, it's very useful. However, there's going to be things like innate capacities that influence how much people develop those qualities. I mean, that capacity to see meaning, to find meaning is connected almost to an artistic eye that you're bringing to your life. And as we know, people can vary widely in how much they see the world aesthetically or as an artist would or as a writer would. Yeah. 
I, I absolutely, and I think again, I mean, in terms of you know, we obviously started this this section out by talking about who would benefit from logotherapy, and I think you know what I think is is good about it is a nice antidote actually to some of the where the kind of Maslow stuff, the self actualizing um, focus, can go a bit awry. Is that he kind of highlights you know if you're somebody who's looking to try to find meaning and grow as a person, the danger of excessive kind of morbid self focus. You know, the I think he even says actually that sometimes people who get fixated on trying to self-actualize have actually missed meaningful opportunities out in the world you know and he really talks about the need to kind of you know transcend the self to self-actualize it's not an inward process it's more of a connecting process you know and i think obviously kaufman emphasizes that element in his book on maslow as well but i think well, that's, i mean he, i think I that's a good right. point a good i critique, think, I think know, he's yeah. right but but again what i would say though is it is probably generally not always but generally as a rule i think it's easier to achieve that self-transcendence, that that constructive forgetting of the self, if your pleasure, security, and status needs are already satisfied. Well, yeah, there's no getting away from that. Exactly. You exactly. know. So, so again, we're we're it's, yeah, it's, we're it's, envisioning. Yeah. Sorry. No. So yeah, I'm just saying that if we take the example of. Um, you know, the, to use a, a film example, if we were to take the example of Chaplin's Tramp, that it's possible that uh, Charlie the Tramp could could find meaning in his circumstance, but the self-consciousness that comes with the position he has in that society, it's harder to achieve that self-transcendence, I think. Yeah, exactly. No, this is it. I mean, again, it was the pyramid idea, although it isn't just a linear process, there was still something in the idea that, you know, it's easier to reach higher needs when certain lower needs, in quotations, are are being satisfied, or at so. least have been at some point in time, as you, as you were suggesting about Frankl himself, maybe, you know, you can revisit the higher needs if you had a secure period in life where you were already in the process of doing that, you know, it's maybe... maybe um, yeah, and um, I think that because yeah. Frankl sees the 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 need for meaning or the will to meaning as the final need to be satisfied, that therefore it's the most important. But I think that that is um, simplifying it somewhat. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, again, it's as you suggested, it's, it's just the problem of trying to make it to to you know these these um, therapeutic viewpoints that emphasize one particular aspect maybe to to excess you know where it maybe isn't the kind of be all end all for all all clients in all circumstances you know it's it's, it's it depends on the on the case I guess yes I mean it, it just it does just depend but I I think that you know he's fallen prey somewhat to what many of those schools of therapy do which is that they you know what they privilege they think is the most foundational. That's probably because in part it struck them so much, their own lives illustrate how fu how fundamental it is. And it's probably in part also that they want to um, elevate the status of their, their own therapy amongst yes. the contenders too. I think so, yeah. Um, it's certainly, I mean, it is a fascinating story you know that, that he tells in, in this uh, that, I mean obviously it's a very iconic you know um, sh you know short essay or short short 
short book really you know that it's been very very widely published and it certainly is a fascinating and moving account of 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 those kind of circumstances but yes it's 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 interesting i think that i think it has both useful therapeutic points to make actually but i think there is definitely need for a little bit of a pinch of salt you know in terms of just fully imbibing entirely yeah franco's prognosis there just uh, you yeah, know i, mean, I think, we, I think we maybe just could, slight... um commend him on his remarkable ability to survive those circumstances we could certainly commend him on his ability to recognize key components of what allowed him to survive and thrive in some ways too and pass that on through his therapy these are all very commendable things it doesn't mean to say though that we have to agree completely with what he was saying and i mean that might seem like common sense but when you're dealing with such an iconic and harrowing tale it almost seems like bad form to introduce qualifications but you know we're doing it in the interest of what we think is the case and i don't think that detracts from the power of the story or the utility of his therapy no, indeed. No, well, that's it. I mean, but, that, yeah. I mean, in, in in simple terms, it's a it's a great book to read because it's such a a, a powerful. Yeah, I mean, experience. But I think, you know. yeah, I think our position is a bit like you know, if if you've watched this great movie, you know, that was a tremendous work of art, and then yeah. you come in as a film critic and you, you you bring in some reservations, it could almost seem as though you're. You're 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 spoiling it, uh, or you're being ungenerous. But that isn't the case. I think that we're just trying to continue on that conversation rather than simplify it and uh, yeah, leave it exactly. where Franco left it. Exactly, I think so. Yeah. No, I think I think that I think that's it. I mean, it's it's you know, there's there are certainly. You know, it's not a rigorously argued viewpoint. It's an interesting viewpoint. It's definitely got a point. There's no doubt about it. But but there's definitely maybe a few areas where it's just a little bit dubious. And it could potentially, maybe for certain people, actually maybe send them down a wrong road, depending on their circumstances. You know, it would be, Well, I mean, that's that. possible. And I think this is another reason why we covered some of these reservations in our discussion. Yeah. Uh, so. But just to round it out, I think that... Uh, you know, what we're both saying is that there is real useful insights for a lot of cases, but we still have to be mindful of a case-by-case basis. And that because, just just because, I mean, just seems like the wrong way of putting it, but, but just because that approach works so powerfully for Frankel against such... seemingly insurmountable odds doesn't mean to say that logotherapy will be the answer for every client even even a client in uh, despair but I think you know like any other human being he had competing voices and how he saw the situation you can see that in the narrative because you know at times he is espousing a democratic view about developing these capacities and then at other times he he intimates the rarity of it so yes so there is there is some tensions there and i think that he must have felt them on some level but he he did not resolve in the in the story 
I, and I can see why. I think he was also in a difficult position because anybody that's writing about their own survival through Auschwitz, that if, if as the story went on, you got into fine philosophical distinctions that would almost seem maybe misplaced in such a a narrative which is fundamentally yes. about inspiring people. Yeah, well, that's right. That's a good point. Exactly, exactly. The genre, yeah. I think, precluded to some extent looking at these, you know, finer points of contention. I think so, yeah. I think that's it. He ultimately came down on the point of wanting to emphasise possibility hope and you know to inspire yeah. people is is, it, is exactly it so yeah yeah i mean i think that works for for the part for you know what what he was trying to do i think that's quite quite understandable yeah um yeah, yeah. so well i think well, i guess we're out of time uh, for tonight though alex so we'll maybe just leave it at that yeah thank um, you that's great thank, thank you, you again uh, for interesting conversation thank you indeed